Hello and welcome to the Garrett Ashley Mullet Show. I am, as always, Garrett Ashley Mullet, and today we're going to talk about a little bit of everything. That's what this podcast is about. I want to talk about everything, and so I'm going to. This is my podcast. That's my shtick. That's my mo. That's my modus operandi, and uh, so that's what we're going to do. But first, I'd like to read to you something that I wrote on Facebook last night. And uh, I hope it's an encouragement to you if you're listening to it, if you're not a friend of mine on Facebook, if you're not a family member that uh, saw this in my feed, uh, maybe you'll, you'll hear this for the first time and it'll be an encouragement. So here's what I wrote. It is a funny business coming into this weekend. The work week was long and full. Believe it or not, I actually forgot there was an election coming up next week. There was just that much going on. Now comes the rest period, and a strange somberness descends on me. It is not anxiety, nor is it fear. It is not excitement or eagerness, nor is it ecstatic anticipation. Somberness, gravity, sobriety, a kind of tension, and a heightened awareness of my surroundings. We are on the precipice, friends and family, and it is a comfort to know that the good Lord is not in the least bit surprised about what is transpiring or what is about to transpire. Make no mistake, I am not saying what we are on the verge of is unceasing pleasantness. The Lord only knows what we are about to enter into for good or for ill, and I am not the Lord, nor has he confided in me what comes next. Nor am I saying that the good Lord, being the creator and master of the universe, in any way lessens our responsibility. We must be sober and vigilant, since we have an adversary bent on our destruction. Yet, when I remember that the good Lord knows, I am comforted and content to pray for wisdom, and to pray that his will is done. Let it not be said of me that I made us all less wise about what we are about to endure or enjoy by trying in vain to capture the moment. Perhaps instead, I will just meditate on Psalm 23 and share it here in hopes you do also. Yahweh is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul. He leads me in paths of righteousness for his name's sake. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil. My cup overflows. Surely, goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life, and I shall dwell in the house of Yahweh forever. So I shared that to Facebook last night, and uh, I felt better for it. I felt better for it not because me just saying these things is uh, some monumental task or, or accomplishment, but because these are things that we need to remember as we're coming into the election the day after the day after tomorrow. It is Saturday morning, October 31st, and the election is at least officially on Tuesday. And there are, is a lot at stake. And I think that Biden actually says something that I agree with, which is that this is a battle for the soul of America. And it just so happens that uh, he is the uh, figurehead. He is the uh, mouthpiece 
for the side that wants to destroy America as it has traditionally been. And not just traditionally, but historically, and not just historically, but spiritually. Spiritually, this country has been a place which conflicted, yes, imperfect, yes, has stood for the right things and has been a shining city on the hill, as uh, President Reagan once said. But that aside, and that fact notwithstanding, the battle for the soul of America is not the battle for our soul. If we are in Christ, then nothing can separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus. So there's a comfort there that we would do well to not forget, that we would do well to remember and to act according to. There's a comfort which is not a kind of uh, vain, uh, sloppy, uh, mindless you know, truism. There's a comfort there which needs to be at the center of the way that we respond to whatever comes next. We don't know what comes next. God knows what comes next. We are not omniscient. God is omniscient. We know in part and there will come a day when we know fully, even as we are fully known, according to the Apostle Paul in uh, the book of Corinthians and the, the letter that he wrote to the church in Corinth. But that day has not yet come, and so we have to trust. We have to put our faith in the good Lord about what comes next. So I am sober. I am grave about the prospects of what next week holds for our country for our state, for our county, for our city, for our home. And I say that for myself specifically as a resident now of Greeley, Colorado, that there is a very real possibility that things could go well. They could go very, very well. And I hope for that and I pray for that. But there's also a possibility that uh, hard times are right around the corner like we've never seen. And whichever it is, whether there are times of plenty or we're just about to go into a, uh, a starving time, as it were, either way, God's character doesn't change. He's the same yesterday, today, and forever. And whether things are about to be really fantastic or they're about to be awful, horrible, no good, very bad, God is not going to be very good or very bad. He is very good. He will always be very good. And uh, we should remember that and put our hope in that and hitch our wagon to that. Now, all of that said, I'd like to do something a little different with the beginning of this episode. And I'd like to talk about what I have in my audible queue. Now, I've mentioned this in previous episodes that I listen to audiobooks while I'm driving around the countryside. I have an hour-long commute, depending on traffic and weather conditions. I get to the plant in about an hour, and if I listen to audiobooks on double speed, I can get through about two hours worth of audiobook in my commute to work and about two hours on my commute home. Now, very often, I don't listen the entire way, especially if I'm going to make a phone call to my wife, my brother, my dad, my cousin, whoever, uh, for part of that drive. Usually if I'm going to make a phone call, it's not going to be less than 15, 30 minutes. 45 minutes to an hour is uh, is not uncommon. If I'm going to make a phone call, I'm going to talk with somebody and, and try and have a meaningful conversation and get catch up, right? Like talk about what is actually going on in their life, what's going on in my life, 
hey, what do you think about this? Do you have any advice for me? Do I have any advice for you? Whatever. But uh, when I do listen to audiobooks, I've taken to putting seven books in my queue at any one point in time. I try and maintain seven books in my Audible queue. And what that has done for me this year is it's allowed me to finish 44 at this point. Now at the end of October, we still have November and December to go. But 44 audiobooks I have listened to this year. Some people think that that doesn't count, that audiobooks are not really books. And if you listen to audiobooks, it's not really like reading a book and that's cheating and whatever. Um, Okay, you're entitled to your opinion, whatever. I don't have time to sit down and read a physical book, much less 44 in the course of a year. So this is what it is. This is as as good as it gets for me. I'm pleased with it, given the circumstances. you know, I'm, I'm happy that I've uh, finished listening to 44 audiobooks so far this year. Now, I could read for you a list of all 44 of those audiobooks that I have finished this year. I won't do that, at least in this episode. I might do it at the end of the year. I think that would be interesting. I think that would be fun to have just an episode all about what did I learn in listening to however many audiobooks I finished in the course of this year. But for right now, I just want to talk about the books that I have in my queue. Uh, It's actually at six right now. I have to replace the one that I finished yesterday. But uh, here's what I've got so far. I've got The Complete Book of Five Rings by Miyamoto Musashi. That is a classic book of strategy from a famous swordsman in Japanese uh, samurai culture and history. Now, he writes this book of strategy and basically says there's five elements to it. Now, I haven't started the book yet. It's in there. I replaced another book that I finished with this one. Haven't yet started it, but that's what I understand to be the the premise. I've also got Our Oriental Heritage by Will Durant. It's 50 hours and 17 minutes, and it is the first of, I believe, 13 books in this epic history of the world. Uh, Will and Ariel Durant were a husband and wife team of historians. And I remember a number of years ago walking through the public library in Sydney, Montana, and seeing this, you know, huge series, this this big epic uh, series of histories sitting on the shelf. And I was really impressed at the titles and it looked really, really interesting. And if I was judging a book by a cover, which I was in that case, they looked like books that I would like to read. But I obviously, like I said, I don't have time to sit down and read a physical book, much less 13 or so uh, books that are, you know, if they're on Audible, they're 50 hours long each. Um, you know, if if I added it up correctly, and I think I did, it was just some, some quick math. I think all 13 books... Uh, add up to about 645 hours if I listen to all of the uh, content that is in this series on Audible. So that's going to take a while. That's going to be a process uh, probably over several years. And uh, I'm, I'm going to try it out. We'll see what happens. I think if I start with this one and I just kind of keep it in my queue and keep cycling through it, um, it's going to be it's going to be worth my time uh, because I, I like history. And a lot of the history that I read is deep diving on a specific person, a specific 
empire, a specific place, a specific part of the world during a specific period. This is going to be a much broader survey of history, and uh, I think I'm going to come away from it with a better understanding of how everything fits together, how everything connects. So anyway, we'll see. I haven't started that one yet, but it, it's in my queue. Uh, I'm also listening to The Accidental Superpower by Peter Zihon, and The Accidental Superpower was written in 2010, if memory serves, and it basically makes the case that the United States of America is poised based on geography, based on our uh, political uh, institutions, based on our economic institutions, based on a lot of things. We are poised to dominate the 21st century and beyond. The subtitle for this one is The Next Generation of American Preeminence and the Coming Global Disorder. And so I have started this one. I've got about 9 hours and 15 minutes left. And uh, so far it's proving very, very interesting, very stimulating. He's got an angle on uh, analyzing geopolitics that I've never heard anywhere else. And uh, I like that. I, I don't like listening to things that are just repetitive. And I've heard this, you know, a hundred times and it's gotten cliche and okay, get to the point. Uh, this is something original and uh, I found it on Audible Plus. It was free with my uh, monthly subscription. And so I thought, hey, let's give it a go. Let's give her a listen and, uh, and see what he has to say. Next in my queue is Sword of Destiny by, uh, and I'm probably not going to pronounce this name correctly, Andrzej Sapkowski. Uh, Sword of Destiny is book two in the Witcher series. Now, the Witcher series, is uh, it, it started out as books, and then it was turned into video games. It was a very, very popular uh, video game series, an RPG series where you play this mutant monster hunter who just goes around this this make-believe world hunting monsters and having adventures and, and doing important, meaningful things. And uh, so I was advised by uh, a cousin of mine that this series actually is exceptionally good. Uh, it's very original. It's got its own angle on the fantasy genre. And, uh, and it, it's actually better. The books are better than the video games. The video games wouldn't exist without the books having been the, the, the um, catalyst for someone wanting to make these into a, a game series. And so I have listened to the first uh, book in the series. It was interesting. I had watched, you know, here's a guilty confession. Um, if you're a real stickler about media content and, boy, we shouldn't watch certain things because, uh, you know, we don't want to be corrupted by um, content that's got, you know, sex and violence and language and things like that in it. Um, I watched uh, season one on Netflix before we canceled our Netflix subscription here over the cuties uh, debacle. I watched season one of The Witcher and uh, it was, you know, there were, it was definitely not appropriate for, um, you know, the, my whole family to watch, but uh, it was interesting. It was an interesting uh, addition to the fantasy genre and uh, it had some, I don't know. I, I don't know if it's if it the cost is uh, is less than the benefit. Um, so I I may not continue on with the series after I finish this book. Um, it's it's entertaining, but I feel like there's a lot of things that are entertaining, and there's probably more beneficial things that I could be entertaining myself with. For instance, I intend once I've finished this one to replace it with C.S. Lewis's uh, first book in his space trilogy. 
Uh, it's been a long time since I read any kind of science fiction. I've heard a lot of people sing the praises of C.S. Lewis's science fiction. I've never read it myself. Uh, but again, all three of the uh, Space Trilogy books by C.S. Lewis were in the Audible Plus library. And so they're free to listen to. And so I snatched them up. And I think that would probably be, based on everything else that I've read by C.S. Lewis, that would probably be a far more beneficial, healthy, spiritually uh, constructive, edifying thing for me to listen to. So I think I'm going to do that after I finish The Sword of Destiny. Uh, Next up in my queue is The Fairy Queen by Edmund Spencer. Now, interestingly enough, since I was just talking about C.S. Lewis, part of what prompted me to throw The Fairy Queen into my queue was the fact that C.S. Lewis said of Edmund Spencer, and this book in particular, The Fairy Queen, that to read him is to increase in one's spiritual and mental health. And I thought, wow, you know, if C.S. Lewis can say that about somebody, that has got to be some good content. I'm really, really curious to see and to hear what it is that Edmund Spencer actually wrote and said that would would earn such high praise from somebody that uh, I certainly respect uh, as an author and as a writer and as a thinker like C.S. Lewis. So Fairy Queen is allegory. It's written uh, contemporaneously to when uh, Cervantes wrote Don Quixote, and it is right on the dividing line between the medieval period and what you can loosely call the modern period. It is the first uh, piece of poetry written in modern English, and uh, Edmund Spencer actually was a contemporary of William Shakespeare. So you've got William Shakespeare in the Globe Theater cranking out all of these classics like Romeo and Juliet and uh, Hamlet and Macbeth and Julius Caesar, et cetera, et cetera. All of the, all of the classics, all the things. And, uh, and then you've got Edmund Spencer writing The Fairy Queen. And The Fairy Queen is written in modern English, but it is very much in the mold of this medieval uh, mindset. And it really does elevate the medieval mindset to something, uh, I think, beautiful and um, far more rich and meaningful than we typically give the medieval period credit for. Now, I watched here recently A Knight's Tale, the the movie starring Heath Ledger uh, with my oldest son. He had never seen it before. We had to skip a couple of parts. Uh, one part in particular is the kind of the love scene or whatever between William Thatcher and uh, whatever the, the chick's name is. But uh, we watched the movie because that honestly, that's one of my top five favorite movies ever. I love A Knight's Tale. I think some, you know, some people might disagree. They might say that uh, the, the rock music, classic rock that gets played uh, in you know, these medieval scenes or whatever is, uh, is you know, corny or cheesy or whatever. They just don't like it. Uh, I love it. I love that the movie opens with "We will rock you" as there's this jousting tournament, and these knights are, are you know, tilting at one another and uh, knocking each other off their horses, and splinters are flying everywhere. I love it. I just love that combination of disparate things that works so beautifully, and, and it humanizes, it personalizes these characters from another time and place in a way that makes them relatable, in a way that 
allows us to you know actually bridge that gap and think about the things that uh, made them special and and that uh, allowed them to contribute to the way that the world is now right uh, how did we get to now and how did they help us get to now by the kinds of choices that they made individually by the kind of culture that they created by the kinds of traditions that they handed down to us the lessons that they learned that found their way into literature and art and religious doctrine and religious practice and all of it, right? How, how did those things come to be in a way that we just don't even realize, right? We, we just don't even think about most of the time. But A Knight's Tale, Geoffrey Chaucer, that is portraying chivalry that is portraying this idea of the knightly virtues and you know can, who can be a knight right is is a knight someone who is noble by birth or is a knight somebody who's noble indeed and in their own personal character you have on the one hand uh you know as somebody who is of noble birth and they've got the title and they've got the uh the prestige and they've got the the position and it's indisputable, but they're a total jerk. They're an absolute jerk and pompous and self-absorbed and all about themselves and capricious and cruel and dishonest and all of that. And then you have, on the other hand, someone who, you know, the knight that he is uh, a squire for or, or serves or whatever, uh, he dies. He dies of dysentery. And in order for them to eat, in order for them to have some money coming in so that they can uh, you know, take care of themselves, William Thatcher picks up the, the suit of armor, he puts it on, and he enters the tournament. And nobody's supposed to know who he is. He's pretending to be, at first, this knight that he served and worked for. And then he starts winning, right? And then he's like, hey, guys, to his two friends that were also servants of this knight who just died, we could do this, right? We could do this for real. Like, we could, we could just do this all the time, right? And at first they write him off, and no, 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 that's ridiculous. But then they do it, right? They jump in and they do it. And I won't spoil the, the movie if you've never seen it. You really should. It's a great movie. I love it. I think it's fantastic. It gives me chills and goosebumps just talking about it. But uh, it really does, I think, put the medieval period in a different light. Um, the Fairy Queen, on the other hand, getting back to that one. Um, now, in theory, allegorically... It's supposed to be a defense of the church. It's supposed to be a defense of uh, you know, the English tradition and these, these chivalrous notions of protecting the innocent, of doing what's right, of being virtuous. And uh, it's written, uh, you know, again, contemporaneously with Don Quixote. Now, Don Quixote was actually a, a way of mocking this medieval period and these chivalric virtues. It was a way of saying, hey, this Don Quixote tilting at windmills, he is, he's a fool, right? He's deluded. He's over, he's over the hill. He's out of his prime. He doesn't realize that the things that he's doing and saying are just ridiculous. They're based on fantastic, nonsensical uh, premises. And boy, howdy, it's a good thing that he's got this little buddy who goes around trying to keep him out of trouble. And uh, and that's kind of a picture of the whole medieval system and the whole medieval worldview is that you have these people that think that they're 
you know, they're, they're saving everybody from giants and really they're just running around the countryside in armor and looking like idiots and being idiots. And it's the common servant of them that has to kind of keep everything pulled together and, and keep things moving along. Now there's that view, which is being popularized, which really I think brings us into this modern cynicism and, and, uh, scoffing at virtue and nobility and chivalry that really kind of helps us to get started on scoffing at all that and dismissing it like, oh, that's just so much, you know, nonsense and rubbish. But you have in the Fairy Queen just the opposite. It is a defense of those virtues, those knightly virtues as being good, as being right, and, and portraying temptation and sin and vice and folly and all of these dangers as being real and as being uh, multifaceted and as being complicated and as being things that it's difficult to resist and to conquer and to overcome. And I'll be quite honest with you, all of that is really interesting to me. The Fairy Queen in and of itself, I have had a really hard time getting into. And I don't know if it's just the mindset I'm in here lately. I don't know if it's that I'm listening to it too fast. I don't know if it's that I'm too impatient. I don't know. I don't know. But I, I just can't quite get into it. It just uh, is hard for me to follow. I'm going to get through it. I'm going to finish it. I still have 18 hours left. It's a really long audiobook uh, also. But I'm just gradually, little by little, going to whittle away at it. And then maybe in the process of getting through it, I will come away with a better understanding than I have right now. But so far, I'm uh, I'm still not quite there. Last in my queue is The City of God by St. Augustine. Now, The City of God is really interesting. I, I am actually having an easier time getting into that. It is also extremely long. I am maybe 15, 16 hours in, and I still have 27 hours left to go. And The City of God is about the charges leveled against Christianity by pagan Romans uh, after Rome has been sacked by barbarians, it has fallen. Rome has fallen to the barbarians after centuries of being Pax Romana and after centuries of being the preeminent world power and the mover and shaker and you know taking all comers. Rome has fallen to the barbarians and it has been sacked and the pagans blame Christianity. The pagans blame the rise of this false religion as they see it for having displaced the manly virtues of their ancient religion. And St. Augustine, Augustine of Hippo, he writes the city of God actually as a series of letters back and forth with someone else who's asking him what he thinks about all this. And Augustine is very smart. He is very learned. He is very intelligent. He's very sharp. And he goes back through Roman history. He goes back through world history. He's very familiar with history. And he interweaves the scriptures and rational arguments and quotes from people who are claiming this, that, or the other thing uh, with history. And he basically says, no, this has not happened to Rome because Christianity became ascendant. This has happened because Rome was corrupt. This has happened because you guys actually were virtuous at one point, according to the natural law, according to God's law, according to the way he ordered the universe. You were virtuous 
whatever your motives for being virtuous were, it worked, right? You did it because it worked. You did it because you were going to get kudos and praise. And when you departed from that, when Rome corrupted itself and everyone became self-seeking and everyone became uh, only concerned about their own welfare and not concerned about anyone else's welfare, not concerned about the, the welfare of the empire or of the city, when that happened, you became vulnerable. And so it isn't that you were so super righteous and and nobody else was. It was everybody's corrupt. The whole world, all of these peoples that have been attacking Rome for all this time were corrupt and Rome was also corrupt. But because it worked and because you saw the benefit in it, your virtue allowed you to prevail. It allowed you to win out against these other forces, these other uh, you know, barbarians that uh, kept trying to conquer. And now you guys have let go of that virtue. And similarly, you've lost what was your bulwark against predations, against invasions. So City of God, really good stuff and very interesting. Um, I'm, I'm taking it a little bit at a time. I'm not, uh, yeah, not going to approach that like a sprint when I've got 27 hours left on a 50-hour audiobook. I'm going to approach that like a marathon, and uh, I'm just going to keep coming back to it little by little. I am actually enjoying it, but uh, I'm going to interweave shorter books with these longer books, and uh, it'll take a while, but uh, but I'll get there. Yesterday, I actually finished Thomas Sowell's The Quest for Cosmic Justice, and in The Quest for Cosmic Justice, what Sowell actually is exploring and examining is social justice. What is social justice? Where does it come from? What does it mean? And should we be for it? Should we be against it? And he goes back further in modern history than I actually knew social justice went. I didn't realize how old of a concept it was. I thought that social justice was a relatively recent idea because I guess I've only been paying attention here recently as social justice is making more and more inroads uh, 2012 is when uh, Tim Keller, pastor of uh, Redeemer Presbyterian Church in New York City, founder of Redeemer City to City, which is a pastoral training uh, program in the same city. Uh, he's also co-founder of the Gospel Coalition. 2012, Tim Keller delivered a message concerning racism and corporate guilt. And you can find the link to that message on the website for Desiring God. And you can also find links to that message uh, on my blog on, on the rocks. I wrote an article responding to Tim Keller's message from 2012 because I think it's very um, indicative. It's very um, representative of this, this problem in evangelical Christianity where Marxist ideas critical theory, critical race theory is being espoused and it's being interwoven with the Bible, with biblical truth in a way that these pastors and the people that are listening to them, that are following them blindly are going to go off a cliff. They're going to fall into a ditch because it's the blind leading the blind. These pastors, they're dabbling in politics and either A, they are just genuinely misguided. They're trying to be helpful, but they're being misguided. And, uh, and that's a problem. Or B, they are actually radicals who have infiltrated the church 
and they want to use the pastor's pulpit as a way of encouraging the revolution, of helping the revolution along. And what kind of a revolution is it? It's a Marxist revolution. It's not just any old revolution. It's a Marxist revolution. And they're going to say, this is biblical justice. No, actually, this is Marxist critical race theory. This is Marxist critical theory. This is Marxist social justice that you're talking about. This is a prop. This is a um, this is an excuse for massive, comprehensive wealth redistribution, for abolishing capitalism, for abolishing the free market, for abolishing any kind of liberty, for abolishing the equal application and impartial application of the rule of law. All of a sudden, we're not going to ask anymore, what did you do? What is the law? Okay, you broke the law. The law says this. You did that. Therefore, here's your penalty. We're not going to say that anymore. The first question we're going to ask is, okay, you know, what is your ethnicity? What is your gender? What is your sexuality? Uh, what is your religion? You know, we're going to put all of your deeds through this matrix to see whether you are accountable for your actions or you aren't. And if you're a straight white male, we're going to reinterpret the laws as they are written to find you guilty even when you're not. And if you're, uh, if you're a, a black trans lesbian Muslim, we're going to say, well, you know what? I mean, you had a hard life and this is really an oppressive system. And it's not fair for us to hold you accountable for laws against looting and rioting and murder and things like that. I mean, we'll, we'll let it go this time. You know, just don't do it again, please. We're sorry. We're, we're sorry. We're, we're going to apologize. That's your punishment is we're going to apologize to you for, for having uh, made you do these things by oppressing you, supposedly. And Tim Keller, he's got this social justice uh, spiel that he gives. It's a white guy's perspective, quote unquote, which just makes me nauseous, makes me want to vomit because uh, it's so pandering. Um, but I wanted to understand ever since I, I listened to that message the first time, I wanted to understand where does this thinking come from? Is this, uh, you know, just something that people kind of stumbled upon? Is it a new idea? Uh, you know, I should remember, I should have remembered then, but I should remember now uh, that Solomon writes in Ecclesiastes that there is no new thing under the sun. There's nothing that we can pick up and hold and look at it and say, ah, you know, this is new. This has never existed before. No, there is no new thing under the sun. What has been will be what is now was before. And we just didn't remember, right? We just didn't remember. The wheels of time grind on and ages pass and we forget or we don't pay attention. We don't read history. We don't read dozens of hours a month of history. We don't read hundreds of hours a year of history as a rule. I do, and everybody is all impressed. And I'm thinking, this is this is not anything that you couldn't do. It's just a choice, right? It's not that I have some special talent. It's that I made a choice. You should choose to read history too. You need to read history. We all need to be reading history. You know, don't put all the the weight and burden on me to read all this history. And then at some point, we're all going to take a wrong turn and realize we took a wrong turn. And then you're going to come to me and say, "Oh, Garrett, well, please tell us what to do. You read all this history. What what should we do now? You know, don't put it all on me. You know, listen up now. 
and start reading history now and start paying attention now because we're going to need to unmess this mess. We're going to need to <laughs> we're, we're going to need to get out of this this problem, this hole that we've fallen into. And uh, right now we're just digging deeper and deeper. But Quest for Cosmic Justice, good stuff. Uh, Thomas Sowell is wicked smart. My boy is wicked smart. Uh, he's very, very smart. And uh, I don't pretend to understand or appreciate all of what he says the first go through. I have read a number of, and when I say read, I mean listen to uh, a number of his books here recently. A lot of them on Audible Plus for free are four, five, six hours long. And so it's very easy if you're listening on double speed on your one hour commute to and one hour commute from work, that's very easy to get through one a week. And uh, this one was good. I would recommend picking it up uh, if you've never read it because this is not a new idea and it didn't just come from nowhere. And it isn't actually, in the case of the Tim Kellers, it isn't coming from reading the scriptures and then saying, ah, you know what? We missed it. This is what it's really been saying all along. This this idea that Tim Keller and others have of blending the critical theory, blending social justice with their preaching of the gospel as they portray it actually creates a false gospel. It actually creates a, a perversion of biblical justice, of actual justice. You know, there's a sense in which you could say, well, so what's wrong with social justice, right? I want to be sociable and I want justice. And uh, and so why not? Let's have the two together. But it isn't that way, right? It isn't that way. We are fundamentally altering what sociability means. We are fundamentally altering uh, what justice is in our minds and what justice will be in actual fact by combining these two things together. They do not mean what you think they mean. You know, there's that uh, shtick from uh, Princess Bride where Vicini, I'm waiting for Vicini. Uh, Vicini is always saying inconceivable, inconceivable. And, uh, and finally, Enigo Montoya says, uh, you keep using that word. I do not think it means what you think it means. And, uh, and so <laughs> all of a sudden, Vicini, he, he's just looking confused and doesn't know what to say because he's been bluffing, right? He's been pretending that he's the smartest man in the room. He's the smartest man around. And uh, he's not necessarily. He keeps using this word and it doesn't actually mean what he's, he's trying to pretend it means. He's just counting on everybody else around him uh, having uh, too much uh, fear of being mocked by him to challenge him, right? That word does not mean what you think it means. And, uh, and I think a similar thing is true with Tim Keller. Now, Tim Keller is far more charming than Vicini. And, uh, and so I think that's part of his cover. Part of his cover is he's charming and he has a, he's got a great delivery. It's very soothing. It's very therapeutic, right? It's very calm. It's very relaxed, right? Like, Hey guys, you know, I'm just a white guy, right? This is just a white guy's perspective on these things. And the problem is, you know, not to attack Tim Keller, not to malign him. I don't want to slander him. I don't want to bear false witness against him. I don't want to be mean and ugly and unkind, especially the people that follow him uncritically and thereby get their hackles up and all of a sudden they've got their uh, torches and pitchforks and they're coming to my front door. 
or they never want to talk with me again. I think that's much more likely. Cancel culture has all kinds of faces and all kinds of ways of expressing itself. One of the ways it expresses itself is sociably, people just stop talking with you when you offend them, right? You're dead to them. They're going to cancel their relationship with you now. But anyway, um, I don't want to attack Tim Keller, but, but as Tim Keller has stepped up and taken this position and has associated himself with these bad ideas, these very corrupt, no good, awful, very bad ideas, he deserves some scrutiny. And it would be a mistake. It would be a grave mistake for us to say, oh, you know, look, Tim Keller, he's just an angel. He's an angel of light. Uh, well, even the devil can portray himself as an angel of light. Appearances can be deceiving. And it would be folly. It would be dangerous folly if we were to say, ah, Tim Keller, he's so charming and he's so disarming and he's so wonderful. It's inconceivable that he would be a Trojan horse for Marxist ideas to come into the evangelical church in America. Uh, it would be foolish for us to, to say that. And yet I think a lot of us are. A lot of us are very simple-minded in our approach to these things. And a lot of us are very intimidated, not by Tim Keller. Like Tim Keller's not going to show up at my door and say, you know, I, I heard your message on the, this podcast, and I, I, I really, I'd like to talk with you about some of the things that you've said about me. I read your, your blog post about me, and I'd, I'd really like to unpack what you meant by that. Do you have five minutes? Let's go over to the coffee shop. You know, that, that's not going to happen. Tim Keller's not going to show up. He's not going to respond to what I'm saying, I don't think. I'm willing to be surprised. And I'd, if he did, I'd talk with him, right? Yeah, you betcha. Tim, let's, let's go talk. But... What is going to happen is that somebody that I go to church with who loves Tim Keller, who loves the way that Tim Keller makes him feel when he talks about the Bible, when he talks about the gospel, when he talks about social justice, somebody I go to church with is going to get upset. Somebody is going to say, I am challenging, I'm stepping on their toes, I'm challenging their conception of the gospel now because Tim Keller has altered their perception of the gospel. And now, because it's more palatable, because very often we do uh, engage in logical fallacies in our own thinking, we are going to make an argument from authority. Well, Tim Keller is pastor of Redeemer Presbyterian Church in New York City. You're not. You don't, you're not pastor of Redeemer Presbyterian Church in New York City. So what do you know, right? You're not, you know, founder of uh, Redeemer City to City, this, this pastoral training program. Tim Keller. So, I mean, what do you know, right? You're not a co-founder of the Gospel Coalition, you haven't written and published books. What do you know? And, and we're, you know, that'll happen, right? And then my authority, my credibility, my standing, my ability to say anything will be diminished in that person's mind. And I think this has already happened, actually, with one person in particular. I hope not, but uh, I fear it has because there is a, a kind of defensiveness every time we talk about anything of theological consequence now. But that is not to unpack any further in this podcast. That's for me to work out with that person. Um, Tim Keller, I think, uh, is is the, the first person that comes to my mind as being the face of social justice in uh, what is considered to be conservative evangelical Christianity in America. And whether he's well-meaning, whether it's well-intentioned, whether he's just 
mistaken himself, whether he's a Trojan horse, whether he is a saboteur, whether he's actually a closet Marxist, whatever, right? All of that is beside the point to the, the main central question, which is, is it true? Is what he's saying true? Is it right? Is that what the Bible says? Is that good? Is that something that I should believe also? And if it isn't, then what? What should I believe instead? What is the truth instead? We really need to be Bereans, brothers and sisters. We really need to be Bereans who are praised for being of a more noble sort, searching the scriptures daily to see whether these things are so. That's what the Bereans, the, the Christians, the Jews, rather, they became Christians. But the Jews in Berea did that with Paul and Barnabas. When Paul and Barnabas came preaching Jesus as the Messiah, dead, buried, and raised from the dead for their sins, in fulfillment of the scriptures, in fulfillment of what was written down by the prophets, as far as who the Messiah would be, what he would do, what he would say, what he would accomplish. The Bereans searched the scriptures daily to see whether these things were so. We must be Bereans. And if we come across a pastor who responds with hostility to us being Bereans and searching the scriptures daily, if we encounter a Christian teacher, so-called, who is angry, who is condemning, when we search the scriptures daily to see whether the things that they claim are so, then we need to ask ourselves, why are they not reacting the same way that Paul and Barnabas did? Why are they not responding in praise of those efforts and then patiently unpacking why what they're saying is biblical, answering questions? Why are they not praising that effort the way that Paul did? Paul praised it. He said they were of a more noble sort. So that's what I want. I want to be of a more noble sort. I want you to be of a more noble sort. That's, that's a major reason why I have this podcast. That's a major reason why I started writing for the blog. Because I want us to be of a more noble sort. Not just me. I don't want to be on a pedestal. That makes me extremely uncomfortable. I don't want you worshiping me if what I'm saying is useful, and I think it is, and I think it's necessary, and I think it's important. I want you to listen, and I want you to think about it, and I want you to be intentional about it. Not because I'm so great, but because these ideas are necessary, because I care about you, because I want what's best for you, because I want to honor God. I want to love the Lord my God with all my heart, soul, strength, and mind, and I want to love my neighbor as I love myself. You're my neighbor if you're listening, unless... It's me listening to my own podcast over and over again. <laughs> uh, I, I want to love you as I love myself. That's what I'm called to. I want to love the Lord my God with all my heart, soul, strength, and mind. And I don't want to be afraid of man. The fear of man is a snare. Whoever trusts in Yahweh is safe. And I want to be safe. I don't want to be tripped up by cancel culture. Inside the church or outside the church. You want to cancel me? You want to say, hey, we can't be friends anymore. I think you're a dangerous influence. I think you're contentious. Interesting to note, the scriptures do say, Paul does say, avoid and mark a contentious person. Warn them once, and after that, have nothing more to do with them. I don't want to be contentious. But what is contentious? What does that mean? Is being contentious being a Berean? No. No. Now, the Bereans were not contentious by any 
evidence that we have. They searched the scriptures daily to see whether these things were so. That's not being contentious. When Paul confronts Peter in, uh, we read about it in the book of Galatians. I think it was Antioch actually where it happened. But Paul writes about it to the church in Galatia. And he talks about how Peter, when the Judaizers came to town, stopped associating himself with the Gentile converts to Christianity because he was afraid to offend the Judaizers. The Judaizers believed that the Gentiles need, needed to keep the law. They needed to be circumcised. They needed to do all of these things in order to actually be Christians and that it wasn't enough for them to believe in Jesus. And Paul confronted publicly Peter and said, you're sinning. This is wicked. You're undermining the gospel. You need to stop it. Stop it. <laughs> In the words of Bob Newhart, stop it. <laughs> that, that needed to happen. That confrontation needed to happen. That was not Paul being contentious. Peter had it coming. And Peter turned his back on that former way of acting. He was messing it up. He was getting it wrong. That wasn't I don't think because he had ill will, it wasn't because he was an infiltrator, it wasn't because he was disingenuous, it was because he's a person, right? He made a mistake and he got carried away, he got he got misled himself by his own feelings, he got confused. And I'll bet you in the long run Peter actually thanked Paul for it. Thank you. I needed that. I needed to be corrected here. And we're all the better for it. And, uh, and that needs to be our mindset as well, right? Trusting God. God is true. Let every man be a liar. And what's interesting about all this, I mean, if, if you're tuning into this podcast because you're a friend or you're a family member that is used to seeing me post about political things, and, you, and you're just thinking, man, like you talk about God a lot, right? Like, can you just take it easy on this whole Christianity thing? Can you just ease up on that? I'll say it again, and I'm trying to say this in different ways in every episode. All of this political stuff is really downstream of what we believe about God, what we believe about ourselves, what we believe about the nature of reality. It really is. If you look at the history of these political traditions, of the whole left-right divide as we see it on the political spectrum, it really does go back to what are the fundamental things that we believe about God, about ourselves, and about reality? And so we cannot actually fix these foundational problems unless we're willing to go that deep. We can't. And if the church is anesthetized to its responsibility to teach and preach the whole counsel of God, then how can we say, we're going to find our way out of this. You know, pastors all over can bemoan and pontificate and virtue signal about how we need to get away from tribalism. We need to get away from, you know, this red versus blue, Republicans versus Democrats. You know, you can be a Christian and vote however, right? Let's just, ah, oh man, do we have to go into all this political stuff? Da, 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 da. You could do that or, or you could actually roll up your sleeves and get to work and do your job in unpacking these fundamental truth claims 
in light of the scriptures. Is this true? It is written, right? When Satan comes to tempt Jesus in the desert for 40 days, one of the things that he tempts him with is he takes him up on top of the temple, I believe it is, and forgive me if I'm misremembering because I'm, I don't know. A lot of this, I'm just, I'm, I'm just ad-libbing, right? I don't have notes. I'm just ad-libbing this. Um, but I, I believe it. he takes him up to the top of the temple and he shows him all the kingdoms of the world. Satan does. And Jesus is weak because he's been fasting. He hasn't eaten or drank anything. And he's hungry and he's tired and he's cold, obviously, probably. And this is, this is really a trying experience. He's weak. He's vulnerable. And Satan says, if you will just bow down to me, I will give to you all of these kingdoms of the world. And how does Jesus respond? He responds, it is written. It is written. He does that every time Satan tempts him. If you do this, I'll do that. I'll give you this if you give me this. Let's make a deal. Jesus responds with, it is written. We need to know what is written and what it means. And we need to beware of wolves in sheep's clothing who infiltrate the church because we know it is not if, it is when. We know that it is not whether, it is who and how. We need to beware of Satan sending in persons to preach a false gospel. And we need to be prepared to say, it is written. This is not me versus you. This is not a personality contest. This is not a popularity contest. This is not who has the nicer head of hair. This is not who has the more winning smile. This is not who has the better book deal. This is not who has the bigger following. That's argumentum ad populum. Uh, th that is a logical fallacy. <laughs> uh, enough with the non sequiturs. Enough with the red herrings. Enough with the, the flashy parlor tricks and the sleight of hand and the shell games. What does God's word say? It is written. We cannot afford to let opportunities to call out eisegetical social justice pass us by. If your local pastor is engaging in that, I'll guarantee you what's making it easy is that nobody challenges him. And what's making it hard for him to go a different direction is that you do have Tim Kellers in the Gospel Coalition who are preaching this stuff and saying, this is legit. This is actually the gospel. And if you don't agree, you're not a Christian. Or if you are a Christian, you're not a very good Christian. That makes it very hard for your local pastor in his community of pastors, in the larger denominational structure, to say, whoa, 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 no, no, it is written. So on the one hand, if your pastor is just going with the flow, or if you as a pastor, if you are a pastor and you're just going with the flow, what's needed is courage. What's needed is people speaking up and being Bereans about these things and searching the scriptures daily to see whether these things are written, whether these things are so. 
You need to be encouraged. You need to be strengthened. You know, Moses, when he was holding up his arms and the sun stood still in the sky, his arms got tired at a certain point. Whenever his arms would start to drop, the armies of Israel would begin to lose. And so he had help. He had men coming alongside him to hold his arms up, to help him. And so that needs to be the case with some of these pastors who want to. They want to speak up and they need encouragement. And with some of these other pastors who don't really care. This is a political thing. This is a dollars and cents thing. This is a comfort thing. I don't want to be uncomfortable. I don't want to be bucking the trend and have to deal with all of that. They need to be challenged. And when I say challenged, I don't mean disrespectfully, but I do mean biblically. They need to be challenged the same way that Peter was challenged by Paul. If this is a false gospel, if this is another gospel besides that which was preached to us, we have to say so. It's not a political issue first and foremost. It is a biblical issue. It is a gospel issue. We have to be clear-headed about that. So that is social justice. That is the quest for cosmic justice. That is my reading list as it stands right now. And I want to just real quick in the time I've got left for this episode, talk about why I decided to go with seven books in my queue. Before I run out of time, I want to explain my rationale here. Part of my rationale was that I actually get kind of bored uh, with a certain topic, especially if it's a longer book, like say, for instance, our oriental heritage, it's 50 hours long. Am I going to be able to stay interested in that first and foremost for 50 hours straight or 25 hours if I'm listening to it on double speed. No, I'm not, right? At a certain point, I'm going to say, you know, I'm really interested in reading this other book. And in times past, years past, what I would do is I would just switch books. If I if I didn't finish the one I was in, I would switch books and then I wouldn't finish that book I was just listening to. And that bothered me. And and the more unfinished books I had, the more guilty I felt. And the less I felt like I could honestly say, I actually listened to this. I actually read this book. If I can't say that I finished it, can I really say that I read it? And, uh, and so what I decided to do is I decided to throw a cue in there. And it started out as, I think, three, and then it expanded to five, and then it expanded to seven. And... Uh, yeah, I guess I'm court packing. <laughs> um, I just keep adding books to my queue until I get the results that I want. But, uh, you know, I decided, you know, with seven, seven's a good number. I have seven children, so why not have seven books in my queue? And I'll just learn to rotate through, right? If I'm just not able to process right now what the Fairy Queen is, is talking about, Fairy Queen by Edmund Spencer, that's fine. You know, I'll just switch on over to the Accidental Superpower by Peter Zihon. And maybe I listen to that for two or three hours and it holds my attention. And then at a certain point I say, well, you know what? Okay, that's that's good. I think I've gotten enough of uh, Peter Zihon's perspective for right now. And now I switch over to The Complete Book of Five Rings by Miyamoto Musashi. And maybe, you know, I listen to that for 30 minutes. And maybe after 30 minutes, it's like, wow, that's some really profound stuff I've never really thought about. I'm going to have to chew on that for a bit. 
And then I don't come back to that one right away. Maybe I switch on over to the City of God by St. Augustine. You know, and so that's that's kind of what I'm doing here. And and one of the objectives is to just finish what I started, right? It, it's symbolically important for me to finish what I started. I started doing this. It was worthwhile on the front end. I don't want to stop doing it just because it gets difficult and it gets hard and just because I, I don't want to, right? If If I'm just jumping out of it and never coming back to it, never finishing it because it got difficult, then I feel like that is a... That is a character defect that I'm embracing instead of overcoming. I don't want to be lazy. I don't want to be uh, ambivalent. I don't want to be, oh, what's the word? Weak-willed. You know, if it was worthwhile to start out, then I want to finish it, see it through, and then be able to say, in hindsight, I did it, right? Maybe it wasn't all that I was expecting it was going to be on the front end. Maybe it was more. Maybe it was just different, right? Maybe I got in there and it ended up, changing my mind. It ended up helping me to understand something in a different way than I was expecting to. But the, the other the other important aspect, and I, I would say this is actually, you know, a, an example of that, is I started out with having a cue because it was just like, you know, I feel bad when I don't finish books. And if I do this, it's more likely I'm going to successfully finish books. And that's, that's proven the case, right? That, that objective has been accomplished so far this year as I've been doing this. I've listened to and finished 44 audiobooks on a wide range of subjects by a wide range of authors, not all of whom I agreed with. Tim Keller, for instance, I read his Generous Justice. Uh, 44 books. That feels like a major accomplishment for me. I've never read that many books in the course of a year before. Uh, so that's good. But the other thing I've I've realized happened along the way is that in listening to several books at once and just cycling through them, if I'm intentional about it, if I'm strategic about it, if I pick well the kinds of books that are going to be in my queue, I start to understand each of these subjects in a different, unique way. The fact that I'm listening to our Oriental heritage right alongside the city of God, right alongside the accidental superpower, that gives me a kind of trifecta. I'm triangulating on common themes between these three books. I might find, even though I haven't started it yet, I might find as I'm listening to our Oriental heritage by Will Durant, that he's referring to events that Augustine is referring to in the city of God. He's referring to people, places, and things. But he's he's coming at them from a different angle. He's got a different purpose for writing our Oriental heritage than Augustine has in writing the city of God. And so maybe he includes certain details that Augustine leaves out. Maybe Augustine, because he's coming at this from the perspective of defending Christianity and the Christian faith against false accusations, false allegations, uh, doing apologetics, uh, he's going to include certain details and a certain angle on things that Will Durant might be blind to. And so then when I'm reading Will Durant after reading The City of God, while reading The City of God, he's going to reference certain things and come to a, a faulty conclusion. And I'm going to say, aha, wait a second. Augustine addresses this. And and I won't fall for it. I won't get misled. Or I will come to a better, truer understanding readily. Um, you know, same also even with the fiction, right? I'm listening to The Fairy Queen by Edmund Spencer. Like I said before, I'm having a, a difficult time 
getting into it, following it, understanding it really. Um, I love the, the, the wordplay, the imagery, a lot of the turns of phrases are very unique and, and beautiful. But um, I, I listened to The Sword of Destiny by contrast, and all of a sudden, maybe what I get out of that is not, hey, I understand um, chivalry differently. Maybe what I understand differently is that The Sword of Destiny portrays a kind of chivalrous figure in the case of Geralt of Rivia. It's all fantasy, right? And why not? Why not be fantasy? Because we don't find these examples in real life anymore, in, in the modern world. We're all so cynical. You have to make up a make-believe world in order to have knights and monsters and be able to talk about them honestly and realistically. You know, maybe I see the compare and contrast between the Fairy Queen and Sword of Destiny. And I see this book over here was written at a time and place when Christianity was ascendant. And it was du jour. It was fashionable to be a Christian, at least in your language. And this one over here is written at a time and place when Christianity is looked on with contempt, as trivial, as ridiculous, similar to Don Quixote. Right. This is more this, the sort of destiny. The Witcher series is more in the uh, tradition of Don Quixote than the Fairy Queen. And uh, and I trust when I listen to the Space Trilogy by C.S. Lewis, I'm going to find that it's written more in the tradition of the Fairy Queen by Edmund Spencer. There is actually such a thing as good and evil. There is right conduct and there is wrong conduct. There is truth and there is falsehood. And we're not closer to the truth. We're not closer to goodness by being cynics. We're closer to the goodness and the rightness and the truthfulness when we keep on believing in what God has said. You know, if, if that is what Edmund Spencer had in mind, if that is what C.S. Lewis had in mind, then I should be able to see a contrast when I'm reading something from somebody that doesn't believe that at all, right? And I'm not just talking about, you know, oh, like, is there is there some sexual content in this? Is there some occult content in this? Is there, you know, I'm, I'm talking about even just what is what is portrayed as good, not just what is portrayed as, you know, hey, there's there's some objectionable content that's being passed off. It's just, you know, whatever, right? Casual sex, casual violence, uh, casual cursing, uh, profanity, right? Coarse language. But what is portrayed as good or is the question of what is good and right kind of dismissed? Like, you know, who can know, right? We just kind of have to trudge through those. So I, I find that in listening to seven books at once that I'm able to, to see these contrasts more clearly than if it's all just in my memory banks. Oh, yeah, I read this book a few years ago. I don't really remember what it's about. No, wait a second. I'm actually I'm, I'm reading that book right now. I was reading it five minutes before I switched over to this one. And so I'm reading them parallel to one another. So I'm understanding and appreciating the Witcher series differently in light of the fact that I was just listening to the Fairy Queen. I'm understanding and appreciating the Fairy Queen differently in light of the fact that I was just listening to 
The Witcher. And all of a sudden, I'm a, I'm a little more clear-headed and I have a little better judgment about these things because connections are easily made between seemingly disparate things. What do these two books have in common? What are they? What, what distinguishes them from one another? Uh, I think that the, the approach that I have to listening to audiobooks is helping me in, in both fronts, in both regards. But anyway, enough about that. Uh, if you've made it this far, you're a champ. Uh, pat your uh, attention span on the back. It did a great job today. Thank you for listening. And uh, tune in next week. I don't know what we'll talk about. Uh, we'll probably be talking about the fall of the Republic, actually, um, if I'm being honest and also cynical. Uh, I hope that uh, you do well if you don't hear from me uh, before the election is over. I don't know what comes next. Only the good Lord knows what comes next. But uh, thank you in any event for tuning in today. I hope it was a benefit to you. And uh, again, as always, reach out if you've got any comments, feedback, if you've got uh, questions, complaints, objections, concerns, questions, suggestions in the way of uh, topics are always welcome. I find that if somebody's going to suggest a topic and, and ask me to actually talk about something or write about something, it really does help me to focus and clarify my thinking because then I, I know, okay, at least this person is interested in what I have to say about this. Maybe nobody else is, but at least I'll, I'll have at least an audience of one besides myself. So anyway, uh, feel free to reach out, but uh, in any event, thank you for listening this far. Be well, and God bless.